introduces this section of Scripture by reminding us, and, and, and I guess I'm afraid that it's kind of a faint memory now, of the kind of cartoon that we used to see of, of a long-haired man with a long beard in uh, a toga with uh, sandals holding up a sign saying, the end is near, the end is near. Maybe some of you have never seen that cartoon. Almost none of us have ever seen it in reality because there are two things that humanity does not like to talk about. It's rarely, it rarely if ever comes up in everyday conversation. Uh, number one is, is our, our own personal leaving this world when we die. That's rarely, if ever, talked about. And almost never, ever even mentioned is the end of, of this world. We think the popular opinion is, is that uh, things will go on just as they have always gone on. That the world, the history of the world is linear. It just runs along a line, and there are some cyclical things, but it's, it's just running on, on infinitum. But we know that it hasn't always been that way. Things, there have been things that, ha- that have happened that have been exceptional, that have been an interruption. And we want to deny those things. We do not want to speak of a worldwide flood. We don't believe it. And even if the ark is found and even if there is evidence in, in the fossils, we don't want to believe it. And the reason we don't want to believe it is because it, it represents a incongruity, an interruption, an inconsistency. I want to tell you something else that happened, and that's what we've been singing about. The world does not want to think about this, but God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. It was a historical event that is incontrovertible. It cannot be overturned. It can only be ignored and denied. These are the kinds of things. This is what Peter is talking about. In the midst of all the suffering of the church, there is always something that we are right on the edge of. And no more so than today, right now. I just have a simple outline that answers five questions. Where are we? Number one, where are we right now? Number two, what should we do? Number three, what is the most important thing? Number four, what are some examples of how that most important thing exists? Why is it so important? And then lastly, why? How come? What for? Why all of this? Well, when you look at our text, 
we find out where we are. We find out something that Peter has been talking about previously. He is fascinated with this. In, in chapter 1 and verse 5, after speaking of, of, the, of the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that's kept for us, that's reserved for us in heaven, he, he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready, ready to be revealed in the last time, in chapter 4 and, 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 and verse 5, where um, Pastor Mark was preaching last week, uh, to give this consolation uh, to the persecutors, to, to those who are being persecuted at that time. Uh, Peter says, but they will give an account to him who is ready, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then Peter will say later in chapter 5 and verse 4, when the chief shepherd up, appears, speaking to pastors, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Not if he appears, but when he appears. Our text, v verse 7, the the the, the uh, first six words the end of all things is at hand this is the consummation of the age it's not just the cessation or the end of life as we know it but it is the goal it is the end point it is the conclusion of what this present age has always been moving toward. It is the expectation of the imminent inbreaking of God's final rule and radical renewal of, of heaven and earth together. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 44, Therefore, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at a time when you do not expect. Write that down. You will be carrying on your everyday lives and Jesus will come back. You won't be thinking about it when he comes back. It, it'll be a time when you don't expect. It, it, it'll be a surprise to all of us. For most of us here, it'll be a welcome surprise. It'll be a glad surprise. It'll be the happiest day of our lives if we are here on the earth and, and, and the clouds break through and Jesus comes back. But no one knows the time. It, he will come like a thief in the night. But look at where we are. We have seen, we know about creation. We know about the fall. We know about the promises that were made for Abraham. We know about the children of Israel in Egypt, enslaved. We know about the exodus. We know about the promised land. We know about the temple. We know about their rebellion against God. They're being scattered. They're being in exile with Babylon. We know about that. We know that Jesus came. He was born. He lived. 
He died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He poured out the Holy Spirit. We know the 12 apostles who were with him while he was here, and he invested so much in him, in them. They established the church, and it spread, and it's spreading and spreading. It, it, it's advancing even now. Look where we are today. We are living in a world where, where there's been no more Christianity on this planet than there is right now. And it's growing exponentially. It's, it's spreading further and further. Oh, how we thank God that in our church we, we, we have the two principled examples of what we long to see. We've got that mature couple who have been married and, and have all those boys and, and they're exactly what Andy Hamilton wants. They want somebody, they, they want older, spiritually mature people to go in to the mission field. We've got a younger couple. Heath and Jessica Dame with a baby in their arms. They are preparing to go to an unreached people. They've planned that. They've got the job skills for that. That's what we have. That is a microcosm, dear people, from at least what I know. The next generation, the young people, the young adults that could be my children, there are more of them who want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth than there have ever been before. There's more to mention. There are, in the class that I'm taking in perspectives, there are 89 students. I think 80 of the students are young people. And there's only a few of us old guys that have gray hair who are still interested. But right now, we could say this. These commentators do not want us to think that we're to look in terms of years and look down the road. What's happening right now, because the Holy Spirit is here. Jesus is with us until the end of, of the age. It's, it's more like this. Here is the present age, and here is the age to come. They are running together. Newman says that, that, that if this age could turn just slightly, it would run right into Jesus Christ. That's how close we are. We don't know when he's coming back, but we know that there are only two things that are holding up his coming. It is the patience of God, the long-suffering of God. He's tremendous. We have... We, who has a God like our God who waits, who waits to be merciful? And Matthew 24, 14 says that the gospel, this gospel will, will be preached to the whole world, to all the nations, and then the end will come. How close are we to that? I don't know, but it could happen. It could even happen next week. It could happen next year. 
It could happen. We won't know when it happens until it happens. We cannot predict it, but that's where we are. We are on the razor's edge of eternity. And, 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 and what... Let me quote this again. First Peter 4, 5 says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and, and the dead. Matthew 24, 14 says exactly this, and, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then, and then the end will come. That day is close. We have never been closer to it than ever before. Second Peter 3, 8, if we can get connected up with God's chronology, says simply this, but do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. There's that patience, not wishing for any, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works and, and that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Well, number two then is, what shall we do? Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, based on the indicative, on the indication of where we are, on how things are. God is indicating to us where we are. What is the imperative then? Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Prayer is the focus. So much depends, dear people, on what we do on our knees. That is God's arrangement. That's God's design. He is glorified by the prayers of his people and your prayers move the arm of omnipotence and mercy and kindness and goodness. We will never know what our prayers ultimately accomplished until we get to heaven. But all of us have testimonies, multiplied testimonies, long lists of testimonies of how God has answered our prayers and done exactly what we asked. He has kept me for 58 years. He's kept me alive. He's, he's allowed me to be a Christian and a child of God. What a blessing. And I didn't even ask for it. And he gave it to me. So much depends on our prayers. Jesus simply says, watch, watch, and pray. The, uh, the imperatives here, the two imperatives are translated variously. They're all good translations. The uh, New American Standard Bible says, for the purpose of, of prayer. 
the Holman Christian Standard Bible says simply for prayer. The ESV says for the sake of prayer. It's, it's all about prayer. The ESV says what is needed is for us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. The NASV says we should have sound judgment and a sober spirit. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says we should be serious and disciplined in our prayers. The, the idea here is to have a clear mind and clear thinking, to think rightly, to think accurately, to, to remove those things that block clear thinking, that prejudice our minds. We want to think and judge in a biblical manner. We're not to be in this context like the, like the de- demoniac of Luke chapter 8 who had to be returned to his right mind. We're going to hear something about that tonight, you know. Our, our uh, dear brother Derek Minton is going to be speaking on on that text, and, 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 and I really hope, I hope to see all of you back again here tonight if you can come. Not so much for Derek. Not so much for the gospel that he's going to preach, but for the preparation that he wants to bring us concerning the Lord's Supper. We have an in, indicative. Christ died. Christ died for your sins. He gives us an imperative that's going to bless us, that's designed to bless us. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. And when you do it, you proclaim his death until he comes again. Please, please. I, I have told my fellow pastor that, 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 that I'm so enthused and so encouraged about the Lord's Supper. I even prayed this, that we, we would have to set up more tables, that we have to get more chairs out. Because our congregation is so eager to remember the Lord's death and to so glorify him doing that. Well, to be sober-minded then is, is the opposite of an intoxicated mind. If, if you think of literal physical intoxication or drunkenness for your mind, it, it means not to be silly or foolish or frivolous, but be serious about prayer, be, be straight-thinking, be sober about it. Be intentional about it. And, and, and so we should come to prayer with a seriousness, with a discipline, with a determination, with clarity and focus. And we don't want to miss this because none of the translations have it. The word for prayer is plural. It's prayers and that speaks to us of the many multiplied opportunities that we have to pray un, under varying circumstances in various places and occasions with our family, in classrooms, in the car, as you walk along the way, when you're reading the newspaper, when you're reading a magazine, 
Whatever you are doing, wherever you are, you can get in some serious prayer, even if it's just a sentence or two. When you get an email, don't put it off. If you can, pray over that email as soon as you get it. Just close your eyes and lift your heart up to God. While you're reading the word of God, you can bathe yourself and in in prayer. This is the fuel for prayer. How can you read a passage of scripture? How can you hear the word of God read without praying over it? Pray over the Psalms. Pray over Proverbs. Pray over the Gospels. Pray over whatever you read. Oh, God, God, help me to understand this. Help, help me to implement this. I thank you for what I'm reading. All, all, all kinds of prayers. Well, what is the most important thing then? Number three, from our text, verse 8 tells us, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is the summit. This is the top of the mountain. This is the peak of, of paramount and primary importance. You might remember Peter uh, had this never-to-be-forgotten experience with Jesus when Jesus asked him three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And his answer was, of course, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus' answer to him was, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. The supreme qualification for any kind of ministry, whether it is from the pulpit as a pastor or a teacher, or as you minister to one another, the, the supreme qualification, the supreme characteristic that we need is love. And love in this context is defined as the love of intelligence and purpose that desires and seeks the good of the one who is loved. It's not principally a feeling. Love has feelings, but it is principally a decision a choice that you make, a plan that you have, a something that you do, you have purposed to do the loving thing towards someone else to benefit them. We are so bent, we are so turned upon ourselves naturally. That is our default setting. It's me, me, me. That's who we think of first. Love reaches out. Love does not want to be rewarded, does not want to be recognized. It wants to do something for the welfare, for the benefit of someone else. That's the most important thing. That's, that's what we've got to do. We've got to get past our feelings. The worldly kind of love is about giving and taking. It's about loving somebody so you can get something back from them. That's what it's all about. But not Christian love. It is a love to glorify God by giving, by doing, by extending oneself. This text says love with, with in intensity, with a willful, intentional, decisional, determined, conscious effort. What the text means 
when it says above all, loving one another earnestly. Earnestly is, is a word that is associated with the full gallop of a horse. A love that is stretched out, a love that extends itself, a love that is muscular, a love that charges on. Why does he have to say that? It's because our love will be challenged. It will be difficult. It's, it's not always easy to love. And, and so Peter says, love like a horse at a full gallop, love to such an extent that you're able to cover sin. That's what we want to do. That's what love does. Proverbs ten twelve says, Hatred stirs up sin, but love covers all offenses. So wherever you can. We're not saying that, 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 that there aren't some offenses uh, 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 that, that ought to be addressed. But the vast, major- the vast majority of things that offend you and hurt you and bother you and are a nuisance to you are, are the insensitive or uncaring or, or thoughtless acts of your brothers and sisters. Dear people, listen. We are all fallen. We are all weak. We all have idiosyncrasies. We all sin against one another by being selfish or self-centered. What we need to do for the sake of love, for the glory of Jesus, for the unity of our church is cover those sins. Forgive those sins. Don't Dwell on those sins. Forget those sins. I'm telling you, dear people, each of us are in need of of that as much as the other is. If, If you don't think you have any idiosyncrasies, that's your idiosyncrasy. You are oblivious to your idiosyncrasies. All of us have to bear with one another. And, 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 and what Peter is saying, that, that the kind of love that fixes its heart and, and, and purpose on others to do them good, that is the most important thing. How many times should we forgive our brother? Someone asked the Lord that question up to seven times. He thought that was huge. Jesus said, I tell you up to seven times 70. Do not keep a record. The greatest motivation or the greatest example, the thing that makes forgiving the easiest thing to do is to remember how much God in Christ has forgiven you. And he has already forgiven your brother or your sister, our are, are you better than God? Of course not. But to know that God has, has forgiven you a multitude of sins ought to make it easy to forgive your brother or sister. Ephesians 4, 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.12 says, my two favorite passages on this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Well, well, then, in the fourth place, what are three examples? Well, one is hospitality. One is um, this item that was so valued by the early church. It was actually a necessity because there were travelers, there were itinerant missionaries and, and, and ministers. Uh, it was not good to stay in a hotel. It, it was a suspicious place. It, it, it was a dangerous place to stay. Well, the, it was incumbent upon them to have, have these visitors or, or have these travelers into their homes. And, and it was a necessary thing. There were actually house churches, and, and, and you will find them all over Latin America. People will fight to have you stay with them. Even in their poverty, they want you to stay with them. They delight in that. That's almost gone away in the United States. But at least we can express it in our, in our community groups, in, in, in the meals that we can have together. We can have people stay with us as, as uh, we are able to do that. You know the bond that is formed by eating together or if, if you stay in somebody's home. That's my testimony. And, and when I have a testimony like that, I would like to give other people that same testimony. We like to have people eat with us and, and, and also stay with us if, if we can do it. John Piper says that a pastor's carpet ought to be the most dirty and worn carpet of of the congregation for all of his hospitality. Ours is dirty and worn, but I'm not sure that it's all from hospitality. But it, it, it gives me comfort to see a few spots here and there. But at, at any rate, it's something that is tested because our text says in verse 9 that we're to avoid grumbling and complaining about it. It's a little testy because it's inconvenient and it, it takes work, it takes sacrifice, it takes part of your income, it, it interrupts your day or it, it interrupts a couple of days. But ultimately, you already know this, that any complaint that, that we have, any disgruntledness, any, any discontentedness, is really and truly against God because God is the one that has made the arrangement and God will strengthen you. God will help you. And, and, and if we grumble and if we complain, we're actually grumbling against his providence. But I'll tell you something. Thanksgiving and joy and gladness 
and, 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 and faith in God will drive all of that grumbling away. If you say to yourself, God has called us to this, let's do it. Let's be a blessing. Let's be glad in it. Well, it's also manifested then uh, in, in verse 10, um, what, what is love like? Here's another example. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Each person, each, each one of you has at least one gift. You have a gift, a spiritual gift that God has given you. And the best way to find out what your gift is, is to start serving. <laughs> start doing something. Or you can find out, if you like, by asking someone who knows you very well. There are other lists of the spiritual gifts in the Scriptures. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11, and, and also verses 28 and 30, and Ephesians 4, 11. But I think the reason Peter isn't going to name any except maybe two of them is so that you will see how wide and varied they are. That's what he says. There are, there are wide and varied gifts for the various trials that he's already spoken of. But the nature of your gift is so that you can serve one another. As I said earlier, we are so turned upon ourselves. We think that we come to church or we're a part of a church in order to receive. We hope you do receive. But the principal reason that we have gifts, and all of you have them, whatever they are, they are to serve. They are to serve one another. They are to be contributing to the lives of others. At least you have one gift. You have the gift to help. You can help. You can always help. You can do one thing. You can say, how can I help? I would like to help. That's something of um, what these gifts are about. In the world, if a person has a gift, they make it all about themselves. They want the praise of men. They want the applause of men. They want to be noticed. But in the church, it's a, it's a gift to serve others and 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 to do it unselfconsciously, if at all possible. Well, lastly then, we have this um, um, word um, concerning those uh, who, who, who speak. And it may be viewed as a gift. Um, uh, pastors and teachers are, are extremely conscious of the gift they have. I have the least of your pastors. You can tell that. I'm amazed that I can stand up in front of people. I'm a stutterer. I'm not educated in a seminary. I don't have anything that my other fellow pastors have. But I have a desire to bless, and I want to be true to this text 
the text says that we are to speak as it were in verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. And, and I don't know why the ESV makes that so complex sounding. It is just the word of God. It's just the utterances of, of God. Whenever you are speaking on spiritual things, you already know this, but we need to be very careful and very conscious that what we are speaking is the word of God. Not that every word we say is God's word, but we're speaking out of biblical principles. And, and, and we want to be sure that we are accurate and that, and that we are representing God well to whoever we are speaking to. So it is not a gift that's exclusively uh, confined to pastors and teachers. So God is in our audience he is listening to us. The final word of encouragement from this text comes from the strength that God promises to give. God says, in your service, in verse 11, as, as the one who serves, it is by the strength that God supplies. God will give you the strength to do everything that he asks you to do. He... He will strengthen you. He will gift you. He will give you the resources. He will help you. William Carey was so fixed on this. It's, it's where his famous quote comes from. Expect great things from God and attempt great things from God. Don't look to your own resources. Look to God. Look to what he can enable you to to do. So lastly, why do we do these things? What is, is, is the what for? Our text says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And all I want to say about that is all else is vain. Haven't you learned that? Haven't you learned that the praise of men, the applause of men, the recognition of men, the gratitude of men, the comments of men, the spotlight of men serve no good purpose in your life whatsoever on, unless what you're doing redounds to the glory of God. Everything else is vain. Nothing else matters. Nothing else has any value at all. So I hope that will make it easier for you to do things just for God, not for the praise of men, because the praise of men is worthless. It's a trap. It's what the world craves. It's what the world wants. We don't need it. All we need is the approval of God. That's what we want. That's the greatest motivator. And so in this text... You've got to see Jesus all over the place. Jesus is the one who is coming. Jesus is, is the man of prayer. He's the one in the days of his flesh who offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him 
from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He is the most hospitable person. He welcomes all. To any who will call upon his name, he will save them. He's got a place for you. There's room for every single person in this room and on the Internet in heaven. He, he will provide ab- abundantly for his people. All of his words are the very word of God. Everything he ever said was God's word. And he maxed out, if I can say so, in glorifying God. That's what Jesus was all about. So this whole passage, see the perfect Savior in it and see the indicative, here is where we are. We're on the razor's edge. See the imperatives that are in the middle and then see the indicative at the end. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. This is what drives the passage for our prayers, for our love, for our service, for our speaking. May God be magnified in all these things. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for where we find ourselves in your chronology, in history. We find ourselves so close to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are happy to be here. And while we wait for him, we want to serve one another. We want to be prayerful. We want to speak your word. We want to be a people that, that covers one another's sins. We want to do all these things because of what you have indicated the end is near, and because everything is, is to be done to your glory and, and, and praise because you are worthy. Oh, help, help Heritage Baptist Church move us along to a full commitment and a total sellout to Jesus Christ himself. We pray this in his name. Amen.